You've been listening to a WCBN Sports production from your official student voice of the University of Michigan. For more, including our 24-7 sports stream, archived broadcasts, and our sports blog, check out our website at wcbnsports.com. Well, uh, a little after 6.30 p.m., and welcome to another edition of Gray Matters, the weekly news and media talk show. A rather large contingency of sports fellows today, and it took them a little while to all file out of here. It looks kind of like the uh, uh, potential softball team. <laughs> there might have been nine of them. Well, real quickly, just a brief comment on, on uh, Darren McCarty. What a what a great thing to see Darren McCarty score a a big goal there in Game Two, uh, the first goal early in the game. Darren McCarty, of course, left the Red Wings uh, a couple years ago as a quote free agent, but he never looked right in a Calgary Flames outfit. Uh, this is a true dyed in blue Red Wing. And, uh, of course, he's a, a fellow from across the, the Detroit River in Ontario, and he just fits in with the wings perfectly. And I saw his band a couple of times, Grinder, <laughs> uh, in honor of the so-called grind line that uh, him and uh, Malpy and Draper made. Uh, an effective uh, contributor to the Wing Stanley Cups. And, of course, he's had some problems, apparently, with uh, alcohol in recent years. But it's good to see a, a good guy like Darren McCarty make a comeback, especially with Detroit, especially under those circumstances. He's a great guy. He contributes substantially to the uh, community. He's one of the best all-time Red Wings in my book. And uh, we give him our congratulations and wish the wings uh, further luck in the playoffs. I think game three is actually tonight down there in Nashville. Jim Dwyer, my partner, probably uh, will be taking a peek at some of the action tonight while he works on those papers and grades uh, for his students, hence his absence tonight. So we'll see him next week. Um, since he's gone, it'll give me an opportunity at the second half of the show to maybe cover something I didn't get to uh, last week regarding the uh, the 40th anniversary of the Martin Luther King uh, assassination. But um, perhaps <laughs> uh, one way to start off tonight's show is to look at uh, just real quickly this nonsensical verbal battle that's going on uh, with... Uh, Barack Obama's comments on the campaign con uh, trail that I just wanted to address real quickly. Um, Obama apparently last week was in a... And I, I've sort of... haven't really been paying that much attention to the campaign in the last uh, couple of weeks because there's been this big uh, gap between the Ohio-Texas primaries and uh, Pennsylvania's primary next week. Um, over a month ago, I pointed out that I think the 
four primaries in May will kind of determine the uh, this nomination. And unless a miracle happens, Obama is going to be the nominee. But uh, this notion uh, that Obama's comments are somehow, quote, elitist or uh, inappropriate just strikes me as one of the things that's wrong with uh, American politics. Obviously... As Obama himself has acknowledged, uh, he, he possibly uh, could have phrased the, uh, the comments more artfully, as he put it. But to get into the substance of what he said, he was at a fundraiser out in San Francisco, and he made a comment, and this is based on the uh, published transcripts of the Huffington Post website. He said, you go into these small towns in Pennsylvania... And like a lot of small towns in the Midwest, the jobs have been gone now for 25 years and nothing's replaced them. And they fell through, uh, continuing about the, the problems of workers, and they fell through the Clinton administration and the Bush administration, and each successive administration has said somehow these communities are going to regenerate, and they have not, Mr. Obama went on. And it's not surprising, then, that they get bitter. They cling to guns or religion or antipathy to people who aren't like them or anti-immigrant sentiment or anti-trade sentiment as a way to explain away their frustrations. Well, of course, the media has seized on this, uh, the guns and religion uh, component of this statement. And I just think that's nonsensical. Um, the, the word that may be problematic for me is the word cling, <laughs> because it, uh, of course, is a strange word in the English language. We associate it with static cling <laughs> of, the, of, of our electric dryers, and, of course, uh, clinging in the, in the sense of a boyfriend-girlfriend, a, you know, a personal relationship, or maybe a an Oedipal thing where the mother uh, clings to the son and, vi or, and or vice versa, the electro complex with the daughter and the father, et cetera, et cetera. So cling maybe the, the, the word there that's, uh, you know, he might have phrased a little different. But, of course, uh, what the media is trying to pump up is the uh, business about guns and or religion. And it's particularly offensive when you get a pompous, effeminate, dork like William Crystal trying to take the comment that Obama made and then try to associate it with Karl Marx in which in today's editorials uh, in an essay that, that, that Marx wrote entitled his introduction to the contribution to the critique of Hegel's philosophy of right Marx wrote religious suffering is at the same time an expression of real suffering and a protest against real suffering. Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the sentiment of a heartless world, and the soul of a soulless condition. It is the opium of the people. And, of course, this phrase, religion is the opium of the people, is very famous. And Karl Marx is a very complicated intellectual that um, will definitely outlast William Crystal, as far as global significance, um, 
some people say Karl Marx is dead. I disagree. Um, there's no evidence that Marxism is dead. And, and as I say, Marx is a, a complicated intellectual. He uh, wrote, of course, the famous Communist Manifesto, but he also wrote outstanding critiques of, of, um, of monarchy, monarchism, the political elite. And, of course, uh, he wrote a famous book called Capital, uh, that's one of the most illuminating um, intellectual treaties on capitalism. Marx, of course, his basic theory was that communism, quote-unquote, which has been perverted um, over the years by political propaganda and uh, nincompoops like William Crystal. Um, communism for Karl Marx was a stage of history. It had nothing to do with the Communist Party or the state, which Karl Marx actually asserted in some of his writings would quote wither away. Karl Marx was talking about the, the stage of history in which the proletariat, i.e. the workers, are the dominant um, political power, replacing the capitalists which, of course, was a, a uh, the, the mercantilist capitalist system replaced feudalism. He was talking about stages of history. He was not talking about a communist um, utopia, in, uh, as maybe envisioned by Joseph Stalin or Mao Zedong. These, these, these people took Karl Marx's political writings and modified them substantially, and of course, unfortunately, they've been called communists, either by their own choosing or by their critics. Uh, but Mao and Stalin in particular really were totalitarian, and Mao's political thinking, by the way, is very complex uh, social science and Confucius philosophy and, and all sorts of other stuff. It's not this black-and-white nonsense that the media uh, is trying to exploit in this uh, brouhaha about Barack Obama's comments on April 6th out at a San Francisco fundraiser in which he's, quote, being elitist. Obama is actually addressing a serious issue. And, of course, the critique of it is as simplistic, non is the classic simplistic nonsense that we get from our political system. Uh, Obama is pointing out that workers in America have gone backwards uh, over the last five years. And it, as I say, the word that I have trouble with is not the notion that uh, people have are bitter and, and, and are frustrated by taking it out on other classes or other people or even clinging to religion. And the word that I have trouble with is cling. Obama has said he inartfully characterized the idea, um, but the substance of the idea, I think, is is solid, and George Bush cannot possibly provide any empirical evidence, or John McCain, for that matter, who's jumped on the story, to um, contradict the fundamental idea behind what Obama said. Just last week, uh, uh, the University of Michigan's uh, consumer sentiment uh, number was the lowest it had been in 26 years. Um, Paul Krugman reports that the Pew uh, report of uh, Americans 
saying that they're, quote, better off than they were five years ago is at the lowest level in 44 years of polling. Now, if America wants to deal with the ideas behind what Obama was saying, they would confront these facts and rather, rather than getting on this bandwagon of calling him an elitist. This elitist propaganda that's uh, been utilized by Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, and pseudo-intellectuals like William Crystal, uh, who, by the way, has much more to apologize for to America than Barack Obama. Uh, this is a... Uh, you know, he was one of the biggest supporters of the war in Iraq. He's one of the neoconservatives behind this idea that going into Iraq would uh, enhance American security, that it would reshape the region uh, it, to benefit America. And this, of course, has proven to be puerile nonsense. And uh, intellectually, I might add, is a far more destructive idea than anything Karl Marx ever articulated. Karl Marx was a complicated intellectual who, um, unfortunately for him, many of his ideas have been perverted um, by people that followed him uh, that he had uh, no control over. And we'll uh, deal with him uh, in some future show. Uh, uh, just uh, to reinforce uh, the idea that economic times are not good, that these uh, consumer sentiments that I just noted, uh, the lowest consumer uh, sentiment in 26 years at the University of Michigan's uh, Survey Research Center, the Pew Report, uh, in which Americans say that they are not better off, is, is the highest it's been in 44 years of polling. That's a substantial period of time um, that basically precedes the destructive policies of Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, and George Bush II. And uh, just the recent unemployment reports uh, reinforces this problem in the economy. George Bush seems to be confident that there were, that, you know, to paraphrase Herbert Hoover, recovery is around the corner. Um, I doubt it. He believes that there will be a recovery later this year. Uh, I don't think so, uh, barring a miraculous uh, fiscal stimulus by the uh, United States Congress, which doesn't seem to be happening. Just to reinforce these uh, economic numbers from the recent unemployment uh, report, for instance, according to Edward McKelvey, senior United States economist at Goldman Sachs, quote, these job numbers strengthen the case materially that we are in recession. The March unemployment rate rose to 5.1%, its highest level since September 2005, after Hurricane Katrina. The majority were men and women unsuccessfully looking for jobs after a layoff, or, or they were temporary workers unable to move to a next job, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Hello. The March decline was the largest job loss since March of 2003 when the economy was still shaking off the lingering effect, effects of the 2001 recession. Since the start of the year, 232,000 jobs have disappeared, including a downward revision of 67,000 jobs for January and February, the Bureau said yesterday. This based on an um, article that appeared 
on the 5th of April uh, in the New York Times by Louis uh, Ucicelli. I've never exactly known how to pronounce his name, but he's one of their uh, preeminent economic uh, reporters. The jobs picture had a few bright spots, only education and health care. And hotels and restaurants registered noticeable gains. Construction was the biggest loser, shedding 51,000 jobs in the slowdown in the residential building and commercial sector. Manufacturing, which has been losing jobs for years, was particularly weak in March, shrinking by 48,000 jobs. And it goes on to note, by the way, that uh, workers received a five-cent pay increase, hourly production workers, who constitute 80% of the workforce, uh, received a five-cent pay increase, which brought the average wage to 17.86 an hour. By the way, that's average. That is not median. Um, That's average. An increase of 3.6% since the previous March. Not enough to keep up with inflation. So Obama is, in, in, in essence, talking about real economic issues. And, of course, the media is talking about this phony nonsense about guns. I'm sure gays will be, uh, will be up there soon. The American flag. We've heard all sorts of controversies about Obama and the lapel pen. Oh, it's uh, enough to want you to, to... It's enough to make you want to move and leave the United States altogether. It just makes me sick listening to some pompous intellectual like William Crystal trying to conflate Barack Obama's comments with uh, Karl Marx and then distorting Karl Marx to boot. Well, before we get on to Martin Luther King, uh, last week... Oh, just a couple of... One, a couple of very quick items from the... uh, the recent Harper's Index, because I find these interesting, regarding John McCain. Uh, It says the number of times the U.S. media has called John McCain a maverick since 1995, 6,757. Percentage change between 2001 and 2007 in the number of instances per year, 76. Rank of John McCain among the most conservative voting senators in 2001 in 2007, 45 in 2001. In other words, in 2001, he was at the center. And in 2007, he ranked eighth. So the idea that John McCain is a maverick is, in fact, a myth. Um, he is flip-flopped on an enormous number of issues and now is one of the more conservative members of the United States Senate. Now, the Senate has changed a little bit since 2001, hence there is a little bit of an explanation in his increase in conservatism since then. But I would suggest to you that, for instance, um, one issue that he's flip-flopped on, in 2001 he voted against the Bush tax cut, saying we couldn't afford it. Now he's in favor of it, and he wants to make it permanent. And this uh, use of the word maverick uh, is interesting, uh, noting, Harper's has noted, uh, of this enormous increase in the media's use of the word maverick. 
And one wonders where John McCain is maverick uh, anymore uh, because he has pandered to the conservative right on a variety of issues uh, since uh, announcing that he was going to run for president um, in this uh, election cycle. Well, anyway, uh, last week we ended the show with this upcoming breaking story of this fascinating story out of London, England, that I just have to read um, to viewers out there, listeners and possibly viewers out there, by John Burns uh, in uh, the recent uh, New York Times. John Burns, of course, was the New York Times' um, Baghdad uh, ch- chief correspondent. They have several uh, correspondents out there working uh, the country of Baghdad. And uh, he went in as an embedded reporter with the uh, invasion. He's British, and he's now the London bureau chief for the New York Times. But because of the name of this person and the uh, substance of the story, I just had to read this. It says, uh, John Burns writes, The saga of Max Mosley, the overseer of a Grand Prix motor racing Uh, organization, made tabloid news last weekend in a front-page expose, an accompanying web video showing him in a sadomasochistic orgy with five supposed prostitutes in a London sex dungeon. Max Mosley turns out to be the younger son of Britain's 1930s fascist leader Oswald Mosley, and the society beauty Diana Midford, whose secret wedding in Berlin in October 1936 was held at the home of the Nazi propaganda chief Joseph Goebbels and included Hitler as a guest of honor. The tabloid newspaper that broke the story of Mr. Mosley's Chelsea session described it as a, quote, depraved Nazi sadomasochistic orgy and said that Mr. Mosley had paid the equivalent of $5,000 in cash for the five-hour session. I'm going to read a little bit of this, and you got to think Hogan's Heroes. You know, either think of Sergeant Schultz or what was that guy's name, Colonel Clink? Yeah, Colonel Clink. Yeah, think of him. I'm more than Sergeant Schultz, but think of Schultz's accent. <laughs> and uh, think uh, Eric Idle in... Uh, the scene from Monty Python and the Holy Grail where he, he goes to the nunnery. <laughs> I think he was Sir Galahad. I can't remember the, the part he was playing, but think the chaste, yeah. Um, so think of Eric Idle. Think of Monty Python uh, in uh, context of this. It says that the video in the paper posted on the Internet but later removed... Two of the women wore black and white striped robes in the style of prisoners' uniforms. The video showed Mr. Mosley counting in German, eins, zwei, drei, vier, fünf, as he used a leather strap to lash one of the women. And then he cried in a German-accented English, quote, she needs more of the punishment. One woman appeared to search her, his hair for lice, while another called off items on an inspection list, Mr. Mosley, naked, was bound face down and lashed more than 20 times. 
Um, Burns writes, Mr. Mosley has acknowledged participating in the session, but has denied that the role-playing had a Nazi motif and announced Friday that he had filed a lawsuit against the newspaper claiming unlimited damages for invasion of privacy. In any event, Mosley turns out, of course, to be a uh, basically the director of a uh, auto racing organization uh, based in Paris, known as the Federation Internationale des Automobiles, FIA, which uh, is interesting an acronym because it rhymes with CIA. Um, and um, he's been asked to resign by a variety of peop people. Uh, Jody Schnedeker of South Africa, who won the Formula One uh, World Driving Championship for Ferrari in 1979 and is still the only Jewish driver to have won the crown, said, quote, I don't believe he can represent anything after this. Uh, of course, uh, his, his connections with uh, Os uh, being the son of Sir Oswald Mosley and uh, this whole thing is, is amazing. Uh, Burns, by the way, notes that the Sunday Times apparently had learned of mischief by Max Mosley and had set up a van uh, with a hidden video camera parked outside the Chelsea basement and flat where the uh, sex session took, took place and that the miniature camera was concealed in one of the women's brassieres. So this is an interesting case that uh, as uh, Mosley Associates put it, is more Alcatraz than Auschwitz. This is perhaps true, but uh, is nonetheless humorous and undoubtedly an invasion of privacy to some degree. But, uh, hmm, it might be the, uh, the expose of this character um, that is more interesting. As I say, think Colonel Clink and Eric Idle, and draw your own conclusions. Now, <clears throat> recently the 40th anniversary of Martin Luther King's assassination occurred. And I must say I was, uh, there, there was some media coverage of this 40th anniversary. Uh, of course, uh, celebrating the, the life of Dr. Martin Luther King in the process. There was actually very little discussion of the assassination itself and some of the problems with the investigation uh, into it. Over the years uh, on Gray Matters, I've done a variety of stories on the, some of the questionable aspects of the Martin Luther King assassination, which of course occurred on the 4th of April, uh, 4th of April 1968 in Memphis. And I wanted to once again revisit a interesting article that appeared in the Covert Action Quarterly, number 34, the summer of 1990 edition. It was based on a British uh, documentary and uh, a filmmaker named John Eddington, who uh, did a basically a, a kind of a classic documentary about the killing that, uh, needless to say, was uh, not widely aired in the United States, but does raise some interesting questions. Uh, 
Uh, in the documentary, John Eddington, and this article is based on the murder, it's entitled The Murder of Martin Luther King by John Eddington and John Sargent. Eddington interviewed a Jules Ron Kimball in a federal prison in Oklahoma, and Kimball admitted intimately being involved in a widespread, uh, widespread conspiracy that resulted in the assassination of Martin Luther King. He said that the conspiracy involved agents of the FBI, the CIA, and elements of the mob, as well as Ray. Uh, in the late 1970s, investigators for the House Select Committee on Assassinations interviewed Kimball, but according to the report, at the time he denied any knowledge of the murder. Now, for uh, the first time, Kimball publicly admits participating in the assassination. Kimball, who is serving at, the, at this time, he's probably since passed, uh, passed along, uh, was in uh, prison in El Reno, Oklahoma, a federal penitentiary. And an interview between Eddington and uh, Jules Ron Kimball took place in June of 1989. And his story, quote, corroborates much of James Earl Ray's, quote, self-serving story. He alleges that Ray, through an involved plot, did not shoot King but was in fact set up to take the fall as the assassination. I should hasten to add, by the way, that James Earl Ray pled guilty to the assassination of Martin Luther King. He was tried in state court in Tennessee, and he pled guilty back uh, in uh, 69, as I recall, uh, based on the legal advice of his attorney, Percy Foreman, who uh, turns out to have some elliptical connections to the Kennedy, John F. Kennedy assassination uh, that I won't exactly go into. But one of the, uh, I bring this up because uh, one of the interesting aspects of James Earl Ray's plea uh, that he later tried to rescind and uh, actually get a trial was that Tennessee had the death penalty and uh, Percy Foreman as his lawyer, advised James Earl Ray to plead guilty because, as he put it, look, you're going to spend an enormous amount of time in prison anyway. Uh, James Earl Ray was in federal prison for bank robbery, armed robbery, uh, and he'd committed a number of these. And because he escaped from prison, he was looking at a rather long sentence regardless. But if he had been convicted of the murder of Martin Luther King, he could have been put to death. So this was a classic uh, defense plea in which the attorney advised his client to plead guilty uh, to basically avoid the death penalty um, because he was looking at a lot of long prison sentence regardless. And uh, what is interesting about this um, story of Jules Ron Kimball is that he essentially corroborates James Earl Ray's story about how he had been set up by a mysterious handler named Raoul, who he met in Montreal um, before the assassination. James O'Ray had a very interesting uh, escape from the United States. He, he, he sort of wandered around Canada for a number of months after escaping a uh, 
uh, federal penitentiary is, I seem to recall it was in Missouri. 